Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Hello and welcome. My next guest on the XL podcast is Rob Nail, the associate founder and global ambassador at Singularity University, formerly the CEO of Singularity. Rob's got a very interesting career. He co-founded Velocity 11 in 1999, well ahead of its time building automation and robotics for cancer research and drug discovery. That was later acquired by Agilent in 2007, and then a couple of years later, he joined Singularity. Today, all is about the power of storytelling, transformation through story. How do stories impact life, business, society? Some of the big stories that we tell in the world to face those big challenges, whether it's the environment or whether it is pandemics or whether it is technology. Who tells the stories? How do we learn from them? And how do we become better storytellers? So stick around because leadership is storytelling. Storytelling is leadership. This is the XL Podcast with Rob Nail. So we're with Rob Nell, CEO and associate founder of Singularity University. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. You've got a lot to um, offer this podcast. So we'll just quickly run through some of your background and then we'll jump into the challenge of leading in the age of disruption. Successful entrepreneur and thought leader, if you're not helping us understand the future, I hear you're often either building something or riding waves. <laughs> I wish that were the case anymore, but um, I, I definitely like to surf. Um, the waves here in Singapore aren't so good, but <laughs> it's a short hop to Bali. Yeah, Bali, places, exactly. So. There's not much of a surf scene here in Singapore, unfortunately, yeah. Rob. So you're here in Singapore for the um, Singularity 10X Future Visioning Conference, and you've been sharing insights um, today, hopefully, for the Future of Work podcast by SIM, and also on leading in the age of disruption. Help us understand, Rob, what is the age of disruption? Well, um, you know, it's interesting because we throw this term around of disruption. It's just out there and totally horribly misused and abused. Um, but really for us, it's, it's the, the core principle of Singularity University. It was, it was founded, based, inspired by Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near. And Ray showed us that uh, technology um, can move exponentially. It can progress at a rapid rate. Um, and we usually underestimate it in the short term and then are completely blown away and radically underestimate how impactful it's going to be. So long term, the impact things can have technology can have on our lives, on businesses, industry and society is immense, hugely disruptive and we don't know it. And and in order to deal with that level of disruption, um, we have to play the game differently. We have to have a different mindset. We have to have different tools and resources. We have to have a different support network. And and that is what Singularity does is to help people see the future, look at future opportunities and implications, and then be able to navigate it as, as well as they can. Yeah. So here we are at the cusp of 2020. If yeah. we were to go back, let's say 40 years, 1980, yeah. 1980s man looking forward to 2020. Yeah. 
what would be the kind of disruptions that would require a different mindset entirely? No, I, l- let's go back. Let's go back eight years. Not even eight. All right. Eight years. Um, the idea of an autonomous car was a Silicon Valley fantasy. The world believed it was a uh, either at least 30 years out or absolutely an impossible problem to solve. Mm. And we would bring people to Singularity University and we have, we've worked with Google closely and the little Google Prius prototype would roll up. And then you get to see it and experience it. And then you, we would have faculty talking about AI and the different technologies and point the curves and show you connect a couple more dots where you're at. And we're like, look, five years and we're probably going to see a lot of these. Um, there's political issues and other things that, and, and then social adoption, who knows, but, but the technology is, you just connect the dots. You can see the exponential curve. It's, it's here. It's at our mm-hmm. doorstep. And I had the chance to go and talk to BMW and a bunch of different businesses. And they're like, no, 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 that's never going to happen. Like, okay. And, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and then what happened, this is probably three and a half years ago, the industry woke up Hmm. and realized, oh, this is real. This is happening. And, and then we see every single car company go into this wild frenzy of acquiring anything that said AI or vision control so they could look like they knew what they were doing and that they, they weren't going to be left behind. There were some companies that Mercedes has been investing for a long time. They saw the curve. They've, they've got, they're leading in the trucking industry in a large industry, uh, in a large way. Um, but most of them are basically still playing the old game but just trying to add a little thing so they can keep up with the new thing. No, this new thing is different, right? So, mm-hmm. so we've, we've got hun- more than 100 years of, of auto industry based on all these different parts and steering wheels and stuff. And then we started adding computers to them recently. The new thing is a computer with wheels. Mm-hmm. And uh, BMW doesn't know how to build computers. Right? Google they, does. Google knows how to build computers. Exactly. And wheels aren't that hard. No. So we, we've been doing wheels for uh, a long time. So we've got that one down. So, so it's a, a totally different mindset. And, yeah. Or the, the other, so the example I gave in, in my talk this morning about leading disruption hmm. um, was uh, um, w- what do you think disrupts the energy drink market? So, so are these all Red Bulls on the table that you're drinking here? These are all yours? These are waters. Oh, yeah. those are waters. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um so, so there's like this energy drink market over the last 10 years that's really blown up and yeah. taken share from Coke and Pepsi and others and they had to get into it with all their little things. And these are, you know, intense drinks of caffeine to get people focused to stay in line. Hmm. And so what, what, do you, what do you think disrupts this energy drink? It's a $40 billion market. Hmm. What do you think disrupts that energy drink market? Yes, anything. Technology? technology yeah. sugar so 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 you know mo- most of us like our linear minds go straight to um well let's see it we focus on health and we know those are bad for us so the health meme takes it away or or maybe i can um take a pill to focus or um we have a startup company called focus at will here's mm-hmm. my plug if you if you like to work and stay focused you, you there's an app that basically has they, they had clinical trials at ucla um, and they structured music to keep you in the zone, hmm. focusing. And if you're working, reading or working and listening to music today, I guarantee this will take you into a deeper zone. 
So that that makes sense. But actually, the the true disruptor of of energy drinks is is likely to be autonomous cars. Where do you think we buy all those energy drinks? Garages. The yeah, the gas stations. Yeah, because you you've been out too late. You need the jolt to make it home. But if you don't need to drive the car anymore, you know the the joke that it's funny because the joke we had at SU for a long time. Um, now ten years ago, so we've you know, just been over ten years. The all everyone that wants to see it happen faster. I want an autonomous car. I have a Tesla, which is really good on the highways and open air, but in the side streets and stuff, it's not, not there yet. Right. They just haven't allowed it to, to turn on. Um, and we're like more people have to realize this is real. Let's get it next year. We need more money and more investment. So who is most invested to have autonomous cars? We're like, well, the, the, the groups that should be funding the most would be like the alcohol companies and the insurance mm. companies mm. because drunk driving is a big problem. But if you don't have to drive anymore, like everybody's going to go out to the bars. So every bar and every like alcohol, they should all be fueling investment in autonomous cars because now we can all party. Yeah. This part about the, the, the secondary impact. Secondary and tertiary. It's yeah. really interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah. even like with the autonomous cars, we're now starting to talk about re-envisaging the city. Yeah. You know, cities yeah. are built around cars and have been for a totally. hundred years, years, right? Exactly. So what does that then mean? And this is also takes people who are sort of not vested in that industry to be able to see that. Yeah. And what does that mean for us in terms of, for example, like how the city will change? Totally. What sort of things do you see? Like, I mean, what yeah. you're saying, for example, yeah. people are going to go be going out Friday night. Yeah. Hitting it hard. Yeah. Getting a car back. Right. Yeah. I mean, all, all these kind of like, I mean, lifestyle changes as well, right? The the future is definitely not determined. So we kind of have a choice in the matter. We can decide and the market's going to decide so we can experiment and, and, and and do things. Um, you know, we also have drones delivering goods to our doors. We've got flying cars or autonomous flight vehicles, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Um, they're real. Uh, you'll probably see them as emergency service vehicles soon, but do we want that city to be like just to like an airscape of drones flying overhead and buzzing us all the time? No, that we don't want that. So one of the things that I try to uh, elicit and, and, and get people activated around with our programs and with SU is, is coming together to talk about what future do we actually want? Because we can create almost anything, but we have to decide, we have to be designers. We have to decide what that future, what, what future do we really want to live in? Mm. Um, and, and, and that's a, it's a fun exercise. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we, one of the workshops we use that I is probably the most fun that I think we get to do. It's called science fiction, sci-fi DI science fiction, design intelligence. Um, I don't know if you, you've heard about it yet, but we've, we've, um, uh, honed this process where we bring in our faculty on different topics. We bring in, uh, some science fiction writers and we bring a focus group or, or a client and we build future scenarios. We take a timeline 20, 30 years from now. And we say, what is the future going to be like? We see all these cars and flying cars and, genetic engineering, what might it be like? And you build some scenarios. And so uh, scenario planning is something that business consultants have figured out how to do pretty well. So we can build future scenarios. We do it a little different because we think about it from sci-fi side and what's real and possible on different exponential curves. But then we take that project or that theme that we're thinking about and we cast it into that future scenario. And then we work with the writers to tell a story of the day in the life of a citizen or a customer or someone in that future interacting with that project. Mm. And you tell a story about what it feels like in the future. 
what it, what it smells like, what, it, what the interactions are like. And then, and then one of the artifacts that we'll do is we'll, we'll um, uh, illustrate that in graphic novels. We'll illustrate stories that you can emotionally engage in about the future. Hmm. So you see and feel the future versus like a market data analyst report and spreadsheets of future of robotics. It feels different. And, and it makes sense because we're humans who have evolved for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to learn from our elders through stories. But why is that important that it feels different? Why, why do you need a story to yeah. create change? Why can't you just say, look, Rob, here are the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Why doesn't that work? Yeah. Um, how's it going with climate change with facts? <laughs> yeah. That's the point. So we, we, we don't like facts. We don't understand statistics and we can't understand big numbers. Yeah. And, but we sure can connect to an emotional story. Mm. And so, you know, and, and with issues and things that are so as complicated as climate change, we need action, um, but we're actually doing it in a way that is dismissive of the reality of how humans work. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's contributing to, to I, and this is my opinion, but um, I think it's contributing to this polarization of our world right now where, mm. like, can't you see? Here are the facts. Yeah. Why don't you believe it? And and um, Kyle Nell, if you get a chance to talk to him, he's mm. he's he's a, he's a, our EVP of um, uh, Uncommon Partners Lab. He worked at Lowe's Hardware. He's a behavioral scientist. And and um, you know one of the things that we've talked about is is there's a there's a saying actually that one of our other faculty, Mark Bonchek, um, has a saying. Um, we we always like to say you know if if I see it then I'll believe it. And I can tell you nine times out of ten, when I show. So back to, back to the car example, eight years ago, mm. I'll show you the, here's the progress, the exponential progress on cars, autonomous cars. Here's where we are today. Here's a couple more dots. Do you see it? Do you believe it? No. Typically, uh, we'll see it when we believe it. It's a belief problem, mm. right? And, and we're, we're, we operate, the reality is we operate more first out of belief than logical connection and that's that's just a reality of humans and we should we should i don't want to say exploit it but we should understand it and utilize it especially for the most powerful and most important problems like like climate change we have to tell more stories about the future we want to live into hmm. and so we we actually published the the sci-fi di book on on the future of learning we there are four stories that we we created graphic novels around for it um and our desire is actually to take every one of what we call the global grand challenges. We've classified, back when we started SU, um, there were no UN sustainable development goals. Um, they had millennial goals that weren't really working. And so we classified from more of an entrepreneurial standpoint, what are the biggest problems facing humanity in the next 30 plus years? And what are the levels that we would have to address and who's in that space? Because as an entrepreneur, if you want to solve a big problem, you've got to understand it. And so we've found partners and everyone else out there. And, and now a big question is, well, what does it feel like if we solve that problem? Like, how do I know I actually want that future? Um, and and one of the challenges today is we don't have a lot of positive visions of a future we're living into. In mm. fact, everything that we're getting from Hollywood and the media about the future we're heading into is increasingly this dystopian Hunger Games zombie apocalypse. Nobody wants that. Yeah, I mean the number of zombie movies on TV about the future technological future is 
is feeding our kids and ourselves this you can't help but imagine that is having a little bit impact of how we feel about the future that's the, those are the only movies we're watching yeah. right um back in the day we had star trek yeah which was imagine if the whole world only watched star trek yeah how we would feel about the future i mean we want to kill off a bunch of aliens still but we at least are leading into there's this beautiful future where We've come together in, in a very uh, inclusive way. We've solved all those problems back in society, and now we've allowed ourselves the possibility to explore really the big questions that humanity should be solving. We, we shouldn't be wasting all of our time doing machine problems. Struggling to survive is a problem for technology. Food, clean water, shelter... Those are technological problems. Mm. We can solve those. We, we've had enough food for all of humanity to be doing just great for more than 70 years. So that's not a technology problem. You know, we've got, we've got enough money to solve a lot of these problems. So they're not technology problems. They're really vision and courage problems. We don't have a view of where we want to go that we've all aligned on and we're engaged, emotionally engaged in creating. Um, and we don't have the political, social, and individual courage to really stand up and make those happen. And and that's and I believe it starts with a vision that is emotionally compelling that we believe. I everyone every movement that's ever happened has been someone being con- connecting to something that they emotionally believe is possible and then they stand up for it. Um you know the the whole civil rights movement mm. with Martin Luther King being inspired inspired by Rosa Parks basically because of where she sat on a bus. Yeah. And it's a belief that change can happen. It's a belief and a vision of what's possible. And then you emotionally relay that to everyone else and people will follow it and support it. And, and, but you have to see it. And most of us don't have an imagination of what's possible. So we gotta, we gotta write it down. We gotta show the movie. We gotta create the VR experience so people live in that fantasy future today so that we can quickly go from that science fiction to science fact. So I think part of what SU is trying to do, let's accelerate through this transition to move to that science fiction future. Yeah. That's possible. So it's super fun for me, but I'm also really concerned about what these next 30 years look like um, because we got a lot of transitions that we have to have to work through. And... Right now, the mindset of the political world um, and, and mainstream being fueled by social media is, is really about uh, a fear of change. And, and, and the way that I like to classify it is that we have accelerating change. Technology is accelerating rapidly, so it's affecting and disrupting industries and, and society. Um, and we don't have tools to navigate and understand it. And the only vision of the future that we see going forward is this dystopian hunger game, zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So we're operating out of fear and anxiety. And when you're operating out of fear, all you do is look for stable ground, which typically looks like the past, not by a future vision that you don't understand and are kind of afraid of. Yeah. And so when you look for the past, you get Brexit and Trump and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you get more of the past. We get more of the past. And, yeah. and unless we shift the narrative of the vision of the future we're going to, and unless we start equipping ourselves with new kinds of tools to navigate this exponential change, 
we're going to get a lot more of that. Yeah. Have we just got lazy or what? You mentioned Star Trek as an example yeah. and the civil rights movement and yeah. we went to the moon by the end of the decade. Yeah. All, all those kind of very visionary pieces that came out yeah. in that short period of time. Yeah. And yet today, all those that you have mentioned, it's a lot more divisive. It's a yeah. lot more regressive. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about AI, it's all about stealing jobs and right. the machines and yeah. the Terminators and all these kind of visions that the media is is sort of spiking in our imagination and then if somebody wants to go to mars there's no real public discourse about this it's mm -hmm. you're crazy you're not why mm -hmm. what's gone what's happened what's changed has have we lost our imagination or can you see you know a change in public discourse well definitely I, I, I feel the change the negative change that you're 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 describing for sure um and and I think there's a need to shift back to a different kind of, 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 of narrative and, and, and dialogue. Um, I do believe it's because we have not really articulated where we want to go, right? The, the moon landing happened because someone stood up and said, that's where we're actually, it was a little bit competitive. That's actually what yeah. really drove it, right? This competition, which is the market. Well, we have now. With the marketplace. Yeah. Is yeah. Now there's constructive competition and, and unconstructive uh, competition. I'll, I'll suggest that our current escalated warring front around trade and AI specifically between the U S and China is not productive. Mm. Um, it is, it is a, a, it is playing with a power that is going to rival nuclear weapons, um, from a couple of different aspects in terms of its potential impact on humanity. It is far bigger problem and we're just sort of tossing it around like it's the thing that we can control and, and, and drive. And, and we should not be using it as a competitive front. We should be thinking about it as a collaborative front. We can still have market dynamics and things, but um, Kai-Fu Kai, uh, Kai Lee hmm. wrote a book called Superpowers um, that I think he's, I like, we've had him at SU a bunch of times and I, I really like his approach. And he, he really similarly puts a call to let's, tone down the competitive piece and get back to how do we, how do we leverage these technologies to serve a more inclusive future for all of us? And as far as I know, and definitely what I am committed to making create is that that future is inclusive of China and the Middle East and Brazil and the U S and Singapore. Yeah. Um, but you know, that still needs a, we need a, a roadmap. We, well, first we need a vision of what that's like. And then we need a, a roadmap on how we're going to get there. And mm. that's hard work, right? We, it's, it's unclear, but I think we can build some future scenario scenarios that are possible and we can kind of choose, but if we can all align and agree that that's directionally where we want to head, then we can look out for the problems that are going to take us way away from that. And, and so for me, I think this is a call for, we need a new, new UN, a new, new UN um, force where, you know, the UN really came into form when um, around nuclear warfare and, and, and um, the concern that the world needs to come together to avoid a World War III. Um, and we did. We haven't had World War III. Now, we've had all kinds of skirmishes and big problems that it's concerning. But we at least came together to say, you know, there's, we want to avoid this and at least move directionally here and we can just deal with the gray area other than that. We need to do that again. We need to do that with AI. We need to do it with genetic engineering. 
which is democratized and all over the place and taking us places that we are not paying attention to. Um, and we're going to wake up to one day and be quite surprised. Hmm. Um, and so unless we shift that narrative, uh, around working together and humanity being together, we're, we're going to wake up in a, I think we're going to end up manifesting that zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. And you've mentioned one of your themes is, is inclusion as well. Yeah. To an inclusive future. And yeah. I wonder, I was reading about your background that you came from a high school where only a handful of kids went to college. Hmm. So, you know, I, I imagine like inclusion was something that's been sort of key in your message from an early, an early age, you know, that, that you've got these groups yeah. of people who are protecting narratives and you know, power structures. And yet with this technology now, it doesn't have to be like that. We can make better decisions. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, um, it's interesting you, you, you pulled that up. Um, yeah, I grew up, I grew up outside of Sacramento in a very p- poor rural area. And now I live in Palo Alto, like one of the richest areas. Um, and, you know, the tension that we are feeling in the U.S. right now, this divisiveness, like I'm on both sides. Mm. I understand how people are feeling like they're be- being left behind. And I see how people are trying to drive forward for more change. But I also see how neither one of those sides are talking or listening to the other. They're just getting more and more righteous. And that's not going to end well. And we're seeing it not ending well right now, and and it, that has never made sense to me. Um, so I, I'm I'm a big proponent of figuring out what what is inclusive inclusive ugh. inclusivity. <laughs> what we get be, it. What does being inclusive actually mean? Um, and right now, with the Me Too movement, which is a powerful force for change, it also has an ideological bent on one level that's also not totally productive. Mm. We need a more principled approach. To what do we want? What what is ideal? What is what what should we be striving for? And then what are the principles that we're going to use as guidelines to get there? And 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 for us, you know, we strive and fail miserably at SU to have good gender diversity with all of our programs, and it's a fail. It is a fail, and it's something that I get called out on all the time, and I, I accept it. And we do really well sometimes, and then it falls off in different places. And it, it's. Um, it's such a deeply ingrained problem and mm. it needs so much effort and work. Um, but if you start with a vision of where, what we think is the right answer and we accept that there's a transition period that we have to go through and it's going to be a bit messy, but we still go back, keep going back to what we agree on the future that we want. Then we can muddle through the hard bits because we all are aligned on where we want to go mm. right now. There's no alignment. We're just pointing fingers at who's wrong more. Yeah, and that again doesn't end well. So, so you know, at SU, Singularity University, one of the things that I've been just most proud of, um, and I've seen happen over and over again, is that uh, from the beginning we we put out a call for um, uh, a diverse perspective for our programs because the mission of the university is really to help uh, leaders come together to understand exponential technology, but ultimately to point at and, and take a dent out of the biggest problems, the global grand challenges. And at, uh, when I really joined, I, I joined in by attending the first exec program. Um, and when I took over as CEO, one of the first things that we, we looked at was who needs to be in the room if you want to solve the biggest problems, because the, you've got these amazing nonprofits that do incredible work in the world and spend billions of dollars, you know, helping a million lives or a hundred million lives or whatever. Um, but they typically do in a very siloed mentality. Those big, amazing NGOs putting billions of dollars on a problem for 
poverty, they're not going to work with those evil, greedy corporations because they're the, they're the ones doing all the harm. And then basically dismissing the assets and resources you can redeploy to actually make change happen. Mm. So, so we classified six different groups that we always want to bring together. And so when we have open missions for programs, we want to make sure to have startups, corporates, government policymakers, nonprofits, uh, uh, academics and creatives, and investors. Because if you get those six different groups, and then for really important programs that are going to tackle big problems, you also overlay that with geographic diversity. Uh, you get socioeconomic diversity. You get gender diversity. You've got a representation of humanity that you need if you want to tackle a problem for envisioning what humanity needs in the future. And when we started that, so our GSP program is called the Global Startup Program. Um, it was the first thing that Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis did with SU. Um, the, the goal was to bring students together. They spent 10 weeks learning about exponential technologies. They learned about the grand challenges. Then they had to come up with an idea to impact a billion people within 10 years. And our admissions basically used that criteria I just described of, of diversity. And we would have students, we'd have 80 students from 55 countries. Average age was like 30, but the range was 18 to 65. You had people from the Middle East and Brazil and the U.S. and China, like 18 different languages, all descending on NASA and are and living together for 10 weeks trying to solve the world's biggest problems. The first problem that happens is you all come into a room. How does someone from Brazil greet someone from the Middle East or China? Do you shake? Do you hug? Do you kiss? Do you kiss three times? What do you do? You got like that, those are the cultural norms in that room. Yeah. And so we had to spend time, like how close do you stand together? Do you look directly in people's eyes? All of those things were like a whole new reality. And it was disjointing for everyone for the first three days because you're like, don't quite know how to relate to you. And then very quickly, you get over that bubble side thing like how to be respectful and how to work together. Immediately what we found was that the two most unifying forces that we have at SU, and everyone else can use it too, but first is technology. Technology equally terrifies and excites everyone on the planet. Everyone is excited about that new gadgety thing and a little worried about what it might mean. And we can productively talk about that, right? How it affects us and what we're excited about. And then if you take those big problems and you cast them at a far enough time horizon, we can all productively talk about and innovate around a future solution that we want for our grandkids. It's going to be the same, whether you're from the Middle East or China or Brazil. And that is powerful because now you have a, a safe space to play and, 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 and innovate it gets messy when you walk back and re look at the realities of today and how do you navigate that first step. But at least you have a common ground that you can, you can start with. So, I'm Is that universal as well? Do people want the same things, generally? I mean, beyond the sort of content level? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I mean, there's, there's some nuance there, but, but in general, yes, we all want security. We want to um, be happy. We want... Um, a better future for our kids. Mm. Um, we don't want to have to work too hard and 
toil and trouble. And, you know, I think that's sort of a common, we, humanity is a biological being that is trying to survive. Um, I think what's unique about humanity though, is that, um, one, we're very fallible. We've got these emotions that, that, um, bring a really unique element. Um, and, Right now, we're really concerned that the robots are going to take over, right? The AI is just going to replace us, and then we're over, um, which I think is silly. Um, and actually, one example I have that that I that is a frame for me, a, sort of a mental model around how to think about whether we're going to be replaced by technology, um, really came out of uh, from Gary Kasparov, who um, was the grand chess master who, who lost to Deep Blue in '97. And so this is the first chess master that's lost to a computer game, right? A little more than a computer game at that point. Not now, but it, it was. And you could imagine the pressure on him from everyone and the chess world uh, around this thing. And losing could have been the most devastating thing that ever happened. But instead, he said, huh, that was very interesting. What just happened there? And he started exploring and digging into it and trying to understand AI and experimenting with AI himself and experimenting with different formats of, of AI and algorithms and computer scientists. Um, and he came, kind of came out, and, and for my simplification, um, uh, just the way to think about it is, full stop, he will never beat a computer again. He, he could be the smartest human on the planet, but his brain is a very finite size and the AI is going to be way superior. So he can't beat an AI. Um, so that, that problem is solved. But if he works with an AI against another AI, he can beat it, which is really exciting. Hmm. Now he went another level deeper and he started doing these competitions where you could, teams could use AI. And he discovered that these punk amateur kids who don't know anything about chess crush him every time because they knew how to program algorithms that were way smarter than the algorithms that he was creating. So it's this, this concept of how do we, how do we actually equip and use technology with the basics of, of, of the intention that, of the problem that we're trying to solve. You don't have to be the expert in that problem or that, that thing. You just have to understand the parameters and the criteria and the constraints and have clarity on the intention that you want to solve and know how to leverage the technology the best. Hmm. And, and that, I think, is a, I, I think is a good mental model and a visual to think about for every industry right now of, about how to leverage exponential technologies. The, the, uh, maybe a, a simpler example that I use with my kids. So I've got two kids. They're six and, five, uh, six and three. Um, and my son, so I'm an engineer. And my son, you know, I, I gravitate towards trying to like teach him robots and stuff, right? Because it's fun for me and, you know, I kind of pull him in. And my daughter too, who loves it. Um, but when he was about three or four, we started playing with some technologies. And we've got 3D printers and stuff at home. So, so we, um, we used a little uh, app called 123D Catch. It came from Autodesk years ago. And it basically we could take a series of photos of stuff and it would stitch those photos together into a 3D model. And so imagine we, you take a coffee cup and we'd take photos of the coffee cup and boom, on the computer, you've got a 3D model of that cup. And then you could actually manipulate that. And so my son could, could like put a face in there and write his name and put a thing. And then we could send that little, little uh, design to a, to a 3D printer and boom, we've got a new cup that he just designed and mm. manufactured. 
And I was like, that's so fun. We just did it over the weekend, right? And and then the next week, I was I was I was thinking about it, and I got really depressed um, because my first career, I went to grad school. I studied engineering. I I spent a lot of time actually in China learning the art of inju- in, injection molding. Um, how to manufacture real stuff because I was building robots and it was, I love building real stuff, but to actually create physical objects is complicated and hard. And so injection molded parts was an art form that I spent years and years learning. And over that weekend, what I realized was my five-year-old son is a better designer and manufacturer than all of my f- career had, had taken me to. The future of engineering is radically different. And, and, and so to sum that up, you know, there's a lot of spaces that have the same problem. But actually, if you, you, you think about the opportunity space, what are engineers going to do in the future? We still are going to need engineers, but their focus needs to be on the intention of what we're, try, what we're trying to build and the constraints and then all you need to do is have an AI come in and say, okay, this is what we're trying to do. These are the limitations and constraints that we need to bound it by. Now optimize and, mm. and make it happen. And we've got generative design tools that, that can effectively take any material you want, if it can be injection molded or, or whatever the manufacturing process is, and can optimize the form for the intention that you've put in. And, and what's really cool, and you can, you can go online and type in generative design and, and, and look at some of these things, but they end up looking like these cool biological structures, right? You can type in generative design motorcycle. And, and what you'll find is these cool like um, bone structures that almost look like biologically evolved things, which actually is exactly what it is, right? It's a computer doing billions of computations and, 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 and iterating and iterating until it comes to the best form, which is what biology does. Hmm. That's, that's how we are here, right? Biology has just evolved through Darwinian principles to optimize for best fit of the environment. And here we are. And so th- we're sort of going back to first principles in terms of, well, what do we really want to do? Here's a clear intention now we have a superpower that is going to bring that to life. And, and that's a really fun, exciting exploration that we can, we can take in a lot of different directions. Well, Rob, thank you for sharing that with us today. It's been an exciting exploration, hearing a bit about your journey and your insights as well. And it's such a fascinating space as well. And I think bringing it back to first principles, what is the future that we want? Yeah. And it's almost like constantly bringing it back because the gravity, we've got to keep beating our wings, right? Because the gravity keeps pulling us back to basics. I think we get dragged into the narratives, the negative narratives about what technology can bring. Yep. So we need people who, in, in a way, some of the stories that you're, you're sharing today, it's like that Star Trek bridge. Totally. These people who have a vision yep. or what the new UN should have been, yep. could have been. You know, maybe this is the forum now yep. for those kind of conversations. So. Yep. Uh, love your work, love what you're doing, and love the fact that you're here in Singapore sharing that vision with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Rob Nail, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.